Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. Follow along as I read here from Luke 18, first eight verses. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the living and abiding word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, the words that we just sang are powerful, powerful. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. We confess there, there is so much we do forfeit. The peace that passes understanding. And we yield to anxious thoughts time and again, almost moment after moment. Needless pain we carry because we are an unskilled people, Father. And and, and offloading to you, the one who can do all things through that gracious provision of prayer. I pray that you would move among us. Use your word to convict, encourage, strengthen, build up, exhort. Do all that you would be glorified to do in our midst. In Christ we pray. Amen. Well, on Monday night, after putting the kids to bed, my phone buzzed with a, from a, with a text from a pastor friend down in North Carolina. It simply said, This Monday night football scene is unbelievable. I thought, that's kind of unusual. Is it some incredible play or something like that? So, out of curiosity, I turned on the TV. And if you've watched any sports outlets or any news outlets, for that matter, this week, you've likely heard about the professional football player for the Buffalo Bills, 24-year-old Damar Hamlin who collapsed during the first quarter of Monday night's game after making a very, very normal-looking tackle. Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest and was administered life-saving CPR as players and fans watched, bewildered and stunned. Comments kept coming, we're not prepared to respond to what we're seeing right now. Large groups of players on both teams kneeled together in prayer as the camera showed tears flowing from these professional athletes. The sacred brevity 
of life was being felt in real time. That reality, the real possibility of an unexpected, untimely death from arguably one of the healthiest people in that entire stadium drew out some of the most religious reactions from our society at large over the past six days or so. One of the hosts of ESPN's show NFL Live paused in the midst of Tuesday's broadcast to lead their viewers in prayer. It seemed that in a single evening, some of the most non-religious people were instantly prayer warriors. I saw a tweet from Tom Brady, of all people. Fervent prayers going out for you, brother. I had no idea. Now, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for Christians close to the situation to leverage it for the sake of the gospel. I think that's being done. And it's been amazing even just to see Damar Hamlin's surprising, kind of shocking progress over the course of the past week. But what an illustration was placed front and center before our eyes this week in which fervent, persistent prayer was being valued at a premium by our society at large, while this man's life hung in the balance. For us, as Christians, prayer is not a tool for emergency use only. It's God's gracious provision to commune with Him while we await Christ's return. As we'll see in the parable here this morning of the persistent widow, Prayer helps Christ's disciples endure while we await Christ's return. As we consider where we are in Luke's gospel, I'd encourage you to situate yourself. Look previous to chapter 18 in the portion of text that is sandwiched between what we considered at the beginning of or in verses 11 through 18 of chapter 17, and then what connects to where we are at the beginning of chapter 18. So allow your eyes to just scan over that here. We'll draw out some connecting ideas that serve as an entry point into this parable. Well, last week we considered these these words in 17, 11 through 18 on the nature of genuine faith. So we noted that genuine saving faith always expresses itself in gratitude and thanksgiving for the power and mercy of Jesus. Pray that was crystal clear in our minds. And in the immediate verses that follow, the story of the ten lepers, Jesus teaches his disciples on the nature of the kingdom. So the concluding portion of chapter 17. He lets them know it will not come in any predictable manner, but it will be demonstrable. We see these images of lightning flashes that light up the sky. Jesus compares his own day to the days of Noah, when all people rejected God's servant right up to the moment when all cried out for mercy, but they were destroyed. Jesus also uses Lot as an example of one who escaped judgment when all around him there suffered destruction. So with a sober warning, Jesus simply says, remember Lot's wife. We don't know precisely why Lot's wife turned back, but in this context, it seems her love for the comforts of Sodom 
the, as the text says, the eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building in verse 28. And all the other attempts to live the good life. But the good life with God out of the equation brought about her swift destruction along with the rest of Sodom. So in verse 33, Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Singleness of mind in the here and now is Jesus' point. Singleness of mind. Rejecting Jesus and ignoring his return will bring swift, fierce judgment on that final day. Sobering. But what will sustain God's people? What will sustain them as we await that day? How do we make it? Could there be a more pertinent question for my life, for your life today? What will sustain you, Christian, as you await Jesus' return and you seek to live this present life by faith? That's where Luke now directs our attention by means of this parable. So some connecting ideas here. This, this parable that Jesus gives is unique to Luke's gospel. And unlike other parables, Jesus kindly for us, we're really thankful he does this, he kindly makes the principle clear on the front end for his disciples. Verse 1 is straightforward. This parable is about not losing heart. To that end, Jesus' followers are to pray with persistence. Do not lose heart, Christians. How, how, how do we do that? Pray with persistence. Coach Jim Valvano, Jimmy V, as he's affectionately known in the sports world, was one of the most energetic, expressive personalities in the college basketball coaching world in the 1970s and 80s. He led the NC State Wolfpack to a national championship in 1983 against the powerhouse Houston Cougars. But in 1992, at only age 47, Valvano was diagnosed with bone cancer that would soon take his life. And just two months before his death, he delivered one of the most powerful motivational speeches in, in recent history, especially sports history. After encouraging everyone to do three things every day, laugh, think, and cry, and as a good Italian full of lots of enthusiasm, he said, if you do those three things every day, you'll have lived a very full, full life. But then he famously said that in the face of adversity, even if it's cancer itself, don't give up. Don't ever, ever give up. And that's the motto of the Jimmy, D, Jimmy V Cancer Foundation today. And in a sense, Jesus is encouraging his disciples here that in the face of adversity, don't give up. Don't ever, ever, ever give up. For the Christian, though, we don't trust in our own personal reservoir for courage and determination in hard times. 
Our perseverance is fortified through the greatest lifeline ever. Direct communication through Christ with God himself. Prayer. So first we see, as Jesus kindly throws it out there for us, the principle of prayerful persistence in verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This parable is offered as strength and encouragement to Jesus' disciples so they might always pray and not give up. So praying without ceasing and praying without losing heart are difficult commands. We know this. It's as if Jesus anticipates this in his disciples. Philip Ryken, one of his books, he details six common ways that we as Christians grow negligent, sinfully so, when it comes to persistency in prayer. He writes this, he says, well, there is our physical weakness. Sometimes we fall asleep while we pray. How many of you have done that? There is our lazy lack of discipline. We simply do not make the time to spend time alone with God in prayer. Guilty. There is our callous indifference to a world in need, which ought to be driving us to our need. Guilty again. There is our false sense of independence. Even if we never come right out and say it, we think we are managing so well on our own that we hardly need to pray. There is our lack of faith in the promises of God. Then there is our outright rebellion. The Spirit calls us to pray, but we refuse. Getting worn out when it comes to prayer is somewhat of an expected reality for Christians. We ask God to heal. We see no change. We ask God to save someone we love. We see no change. We ask God to break the power of addiction in a family member, perhaps. We see no change. We ask God to provide a spouse, but we see no change. We ask God to lead us to a better job or career. We see no change. The Apostle Paul uses the same verb here in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says he does not lose heart. Even though he is afflicted in every way, he's crushed and perplexed and persecuted, struck down, always given up to the death, to death for Jesus' sake. So toward this goal of encouraging prayerful persistence, Jesus now describes the parable of the widow and the unjust judge in verses 2 through 5. Well, good stories, as you know, always involve interesting characters, complex people. And this is true of Jesus' parable here. Though we don't have a lot of information, they are certainly interesting. The two main characters are opposites of one another. The judge is a man, the widow, a woman. The judge has tons of unchecked power. The widow, none. The judge is filled with wicked intent. The widow, good intent. So verse 2 begins by describing the first character in the story. We get a window, a glimpse into this judge, who he is, 
What drives him? In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So these two traits mark him out. He's your all-around corrupt bad guy with a lot of power. He's a scourge to his city, even though he's no doubt an elite member of society. He's a violator of 2 Chronicles 19, where Jehoshaphat exhorts the judges of Israel to consider what you are doing, Jehoshaphat says, for you judge not on behalf of human beings, but on the Lord's behalf. He is with you in giving judgment. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care what you do. For there is no perversion of justice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking of bribes. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. This is the counsel to the office this man holds. How flagrant he is in violating such a call. This judge does not fear God or care about people. And, as we read in verse 4, he owns it. He's not even trying to pretend like he does. He declares it about himself. As a terrible of a person. And as you know, folks, you know I hate God and I hate people. Wow, the brazenness. He knows it. Others know it. Throughout human history, corrupt judges have just been the norm, sadly, for many, many, many societies. And usually, money solves everything, doesn't it? That's why offering bribes was simply part of the deal. So what time does this corrupt judge have for this impoverished widow? Right? She's at the bottom end of society, and likely she doesn't have a penny to her name. Pun intended, she doesn't have a prayer of gaining justice from this judge. The widow. Well, widows in ancient times were about the most vulnerable in society. She actually may not have been that old. She may have even been in her her 30s or something close to that. But this category deserves special protection under the law of God. It should be noted also that this is not something that changes under the new covenant. The church of Jesus Christ today is still tasked with unique care for the widows in her midst. I'm thankful for even the way that this assembly is sought to and still seeks to honor Scripture's counsel in this regard. But apparently, some big injustice has happened. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's happened against her. Perhaps, as Luke mentions in chapter 20, it could be one of those swindler conman scribes who walk around in long robes, Luke writes, they love recognition in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue, VIP treatment everywhere, places of honor at the feasts. But what do they do? Devour widows' homes. Wicked. What that probably meant is these scribes would have been sort of legal experts, executors of a will, maybe, that as that widow's husband passes away, they swoop in to, to sort of dictate terms, and before long, they're stealing, 
conning these widows out of stuff that's rightfully theirs. It's wicked. In such circumstances, widows were usually out of options when that would happen. It seemed like it happened kind of regularly. But not this widow. (laughs) She won't go away. She won't stop pursuing her just cause. And as the text says, she kept coming. She kept coming, saying, give me justice. And she was right to do so. For Deuteronomy places a curse on those who oppress widows. She was in the right, even though it would appear that she stood alone without a single alibi. We see the confrontation unfold in verses 4 and 5. At first, the wicked judge just tries to turn a blind eye to this annoying woman. But she won't go away. She keeps coming over and over and over. Maybe she hounds him in all of life, finding him, persisting in her complaint. Until finally, the judge grants her justice. Because, as he says, she beat him down (laughs) by her continual coming. This is the same word the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says he does not box as one beating the air. She wore this judge out until he couldn't go another round in the ring with her. So he finally conceded to giving her the one thing she wanted justice. She didn't take matters into her own hands. She didn't try to exact vengeance on her adversary, her opponent, on her own terms. No, she sought the right goal through the right means, even if it meant relentless, dogged determination to persistently keep coming day after day after day. Years ago, the the story has been told of one Colorado rancher who accidentally was sent 9,734 notifications in the mail asking him if he wanted to renew his subscription to National Geographic. (laughs) Oh, for the glories of email, right? (laughs) Finally, against his will, he drove 10 miles to the nearest post office and wrote a note with the form that said, I give up, send me your magazine. (laughs) Similarly, in this parable, the widow's relentless pursuit of the judge wore him out until he delivered justice on her behalf. We then see the parable applied in these next three verses, verses 6 through 8. Here, Jesus explains the parable's significance to his disciples. And let's first make sure we avoid some misinterpretations of this parable. Now, some might be tempted to conclude that we should be restless, aggressive activists picketing the doors of heaven until God, like the unjust judge, finally opens heaven's door and grants our requests because we've worn him down. No. As one author notes, a distressed begging of God isn't... Okay, that was a little different. 
a distressed begging of God, bugging him, is in fact inadequate prayer. We must not slip into believing that there's this ever-expanding treasury of merit, that our prayers are eventually growing into some large enough treasury that God finally can't ignore it anymore, and we get the grace that we want. To that we say emphatically, no. We should remember that this parable is one of contrast. Contrast. God is not, not like the unjust judge. That's the point. This judge is wicked. Remember, he hated God. He hated people. On the contrary, our Heavenly Father is just the opposite. He is always, always just. But he is always loving. Always a protector of the vulnerable. And the point of this parable is that even when it appears like there is no answer and there is no justice, keep coming to the Lord in prayer. Don't stop. Because unlike the lords of human courts, the Lord of heaven's court will always do what is right in his time according to his will, not ours. In verse 7, Jesus says, Will not God give justice to his elect? Again, pointing out this contrast to his elect who come to him day and night. So the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. As Josh read earlier from Luke 11, we have a heavenly Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. He does not delight in trickery giving serpents and scorpions just to mess around with us because he can when we simply ask him for daily bread? No. Unlike the judge and the widow who have nothing to do with one another, we come day and night as God's chosen people, his elect. We come as family. How much more will our God hear and answer the persistent cries of his own children? Verse 7 ends with a question. Will he delay long over them? Meaning, will God keep delaying justice for his own sons and daughters? This is a window here into the heart of God. We will never know when or how God will administer justice on this earth. But we do know one thing. We know his heart. Verse 8 begins with this pronouncement then that God will swiftly and speedily administer justice. But again, according to his timeline, not ours. So verse 8 ends with a motivational question of sorts. intended to stir us up in a positive manner. So when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This may strike us as a, a bit out of place or a bit unexpected. In other words, how does this question relate? Well, we often do all the question asking of God, or at least we think we do. 
What in the world is going on around me? Why is the world the way it is? When will Jesus come back? How long will this keep going on? And so forth. But here Jesus asked us the question. He asked us to consider the state of our hearts as we await his return. So the story of the ten lepers helps us see how genuine faith is paired with a a Jesus-directed thanksgiving, saving faith, hardwired to a Jesus-directed thanksgiving. Well, the parable of the persistent widow, just a few verses later, helps us see how genuine faith is paired with fervent, persistent prayer. St. Augustine once stated, When faith fails, prayer dies. In order to pray, we must have faith. So what does the other side of the coin look like in this situation? What, for those who are not members of God's elect, those without saving faith, those who have never cried out to God, what does their situation look like according to this text? When the Son of Man comes, it's a love Him or hate Him kind of situation. There are no neutral parties. Third options just don't exist. For the children of God, it is final vindication. We long for that day. It's ultimate righteous justice as Jesus comes to reign in all places over all people. Finally, forever, it's done. Revelation 6 details that for those rebellious kings, rulers, generals, the rich and the powerful, John writes, people just like the unjust judge, they will beg for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. Why? To hide them from the face, from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, what a comparison. Begging for a mountain to fall on me than have to face the wrath of the Lamb. If you face Him then, having never trusted in Him as Savior, it only ends one way. Eternal punishment. But by God's grace, that moment is not this moment. Today can be the day in which you utter your first prayer to the Lord, asking that He might grant saving faith to trust in the mercy of God in Christ to be your Savior and to save you from such wrath. I exhort you, come to Jesus as we have sung Trust in Him. Know the joy of communion with God through Christ. As we consider how to respond to this this parable, it sure seems that Jesus has already told us in verse 1 how we're supposed to respond to this parable. Followers of Jesus, what will sustain you as you await Christ's return in a deeply broken and unjust world? 
Well, I think it's as simple as this. Don't stop praying. Don't lose heart. Don't stop praying. Don't lose heart. Don't stop praying when God feels distant for you, brother or sister. The very reality of distance from God is that reminder of the fall, that things are not right. We were made to live before the presence of God. And oh, how we long to just see Jesus face to face. Like the single-minded, tenacious persistence of this widow. Pray through the fog when God's presence seems nowhere to be found. Don't stop praying when injustice appears to win. Until Christ's return, injustice will appear to have the upper hand, especially against God's people. Injustices from A to Z will come against God's people. The wicked, sometimes in disguise as if they are the servants of God, will continue to devour widows' houses. As Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, they will have eyes full of adultery. They will be trained in greed. They will act like irrational animals. They will revel in their destruction. They will promise freedom while being slaves themselves to their own destruction. And yet God's church will prevail against all enemies within and without. So with certain victory on the horizon, Christian, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying for Christ's return. The church in every age has come to plead that and to cry, come, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. The church in every age longs for the fulfillment of the age. When we as the church pray for Christ's return, it's our continual reminder that we're a pilgrim people. That is the nature of our present condition. We are not to be overly comfortable in this life such that we stop longing for our true home. Don't stop praying for Jesus' return. Don't stop praying and don't lose heart. Don't lose heart at the power of prayer. How easy that can be. James tells us the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. It's often an encouragement for me to be reminded of that throne room scene in Revelation chapter 5 when the four living creatures come with the 24 elders and holding a, a harp in one hand and the golden bowls of incense in the other, which, as John says, are what? The prayers of the saints. What an image like incense in the temple, these bowls of incense, the prayers of God's people ascend as a sweet aroma before the king. He delights in them, Christian. He hears every last one. Amazing. And he answers each one according to his will. What a thought. Your prayers are known by God. They ascend through Christ before His throne. And they will appear on the last day with great purpose. 
He has promised He is working to bring about all things through these prayers for His glory and our eternal joy. We must not lose heart even when sin chills the delight of prayer. Oh, how chilly things can get when sin begins to reign. Is this you? Is this us? Have we forgotten the sweetness of talking to God? Like Adam and Eve who were the first to run and hide from God's presence, are, are you too ashamed to come out of the shadows, own up to your wicked ways, and feel the warm sunlight of Jesus' mercy and grace melt away the frost of sin? If the Psalms teach us anything, it's that we should sing and we should pray in all seasons of life and through every emotion and every difficulty of the soul. That is why repentance is just so great. It's our cry of disgust that the idols of this world just aren't doing the trick. They will not, they cannot bring that abiding joy. They are only cheap, fleeting imitations. Prayer of repentance calls them out for what they are. May God help us, many of us, experience that that holy thaw within our hearts as the grace and mercy of Christ warms our chilly souls, bringing us back to joyful communion with Himself. Well, each year, we have the privilege as a church to gather at the beginning of a new year and consecrate ourselves before the Lord through fervent and persistent prayer, through our all-night prayer vigil. happens this Friday. It starts at 7 p.m., happens right here, and it ends at 4 a.m. I want to take a moment and connect this parable with the purpose and the value of what will take place in this same space on that night. Because I think there really is a unique opportunity to apply this text in this particular way. We meet this coming weekend for this purpose. We hope to approach the Lord like the widow in this parable, believing by faith that the judge of all the world will do what is right, And we want to confess collectively that we as an assembly, as a church, are dependent upon Him in every area. There are certain features about the all-night prayer vigil that stand out and stand apart, even of other gatherings that take place throughout the year, that commend its consideration for all of us. One, it's a unique time of year. It really is. It's cold. (laughs) there are a lot of things that we could be doing. It's at the beginning of a calendar year. It's it's a time when all of us are are making plans and looking ahead and even reviewing those resolutions from the week before or so and how we're doing, plotting out the next year. It's a unique time to consecrate all that we are and all that we aim to accomplish as God's people in His church. It's a unique type of gathering. All people, multi-generational, the people of God, coming together together to pray, 
open to anyone. There's no constraints on who is welcome. We assemble simply to pray. It's a unique kind of focus. There is no other purpose that we're trying to pray and then get to. Prayer is the point of the whole time. It's not a prelude to anything else. It's the main event. The time is scheduled out in 50-minute blocks with different focus areas each hour. Focus on missions, a, a focus on just praying through the church calendar, item by item, event by event. Praying through the church uh, membership and, and praying prayers of confession and thanksgiving and others like this. There's a unique kind of sacrifice involved. And those that have been know it is when you lose sleep for something, you are automatically declaring this is important. How many people lose sleep to get in those lines the night before Black Friday? Got to get that deal. If I can save $13 by giving up a night of sleep, oh, so worth it. Really. When you lose sleep to go hunting or fishing or camping, we say those things are important. The value we derive from it. Lose sleep to see a favorite musician, sports team, entertainer perform. Oftentimes those things going into the wee hours of the morning. But always our after memory of it is, that was awesome. That was great. It's a unique kind of sacrifice, but it's met with a unique kind of blessing. Is there an activity that gives a greater return on your investment than prayer? Is there anyone in the 30-plus year history of Eden Baptist Church praying through the night that walked out saying, and if there is, Dan, don't answer this, meh, that didn't quite meet my expectations. Yeah, I just didn't feel it. You know, I put in the work, but that was not that helpful. I don't think so. Generally, it's a tired, squinty-eyed, I was, that was well worth it. There is no greater work. Prayer is hard, tiring, but it fuels believers to live and enjoy the light of God's presence. The activity is quite literally what we were made to do, to speak to God and to live as his loving, dependent creatures. Now, like all areas of life, it's, it's one thing to listen passively and learn about something, and it's quite another thing to actively practice that thing. Prayer is intended to be actively practiced. Now, this is certainly there are, there are constrictions and ways in which perhaps driving at night or schedule conflicts with work or different things. Just, it's just not possible. And of course, we, we bless all who cannot make it. But perhaps those fears of, you know, I just don't think I pray very well out loud. Um, what a better time to, to, to practice, to hear God's people just praying, even learning from one another in that regard. Certainly there's fears of not knowing everyone, perhaps if you're somewhat new. But is there a better context for that? Maybe even a fear of being bored. Are you kidding me? Hours of this? What am I supposed to do? I'm going to feel guilty and then I'm just going to run out the door fast because I don't know what to do. Almost a paralyzed sense. I assure you, all these fears can be allayed. 
at the amazing way that the Lord hears our prayers and the joy of participating in fervent, persistent prayer together. The English Bishop J.C. Ryle once said this. He said, do we ever feel a secret inclination to hurry our prayers or to shorten our prayers or become careless about our prayers or omit our prayers altogether? Let us be sure when we do this, it is a direct temptation from the devil. He's trying to sap and undermine the very citadel of our souls and to cast us down to hell. Let us resist the temptation and cast it behind our backs. Let us resolve to pray on steadily, patiently, perseveringly, and let us never doubt that it does us good. However long the answer may be in coming, still let us pray on. Whatever sacrifice and self-denial it may cost us, still let us pray on. We pray on in the spirit of this persistent widow, displaying saving faith through tireless prayer. In this regard, we don't give up. We hear Jesus' counsel, don't give up. Don't ever, ever give up. May we not lose heart as we await Christ's return and live by faith in this precious gift of communion with our Lord through prayer. Let's pray. Father, we exercise this sweet gift now as we ask you to work through this simple story. It's unique. It's kind of different in different ways. And certainly it's easy for us to come to strange conclusions or or off-kilter conclusions, but we see the clear principle you have for us to come, to not quit, and to not judge you by what we see in the here and now, but to know that your promises, we can anchor our very souls into them. Help us to do this. Lord, as many of us will gather in small groups, in home groups, in the hours to come, I pray that you would Strengthen us as we pray together, as we lift up our souls to you, and as we retrieve some of the joyful glory of of what was lost in the garden and enjoy talking with you. May, May we give to the wind our fears and run to you in faith. And when the Son of Man comes, may he find faith represented in us. And may we live for his honor, seeking his glory above all else. It's in Christ we ask. Amen.